The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, I've got 6.30. This is my favorite part of the week, every week. We get to go through Pilgrim's Progress and do all kinds of exciting things. What I really meant, my favorite part of the time is where I get to yell and get everyone to stop talking and socialize. That's my favorite part of the whole thing. I'm just kidding. Um, tell you what, why don't you go to the last page of your outline that I gave you, page 18, am I right? And I gave you a kind of a schedule for the rest of the summer um, with page numbers on the volume that, that we've sold, the subsidized $5 book. You know, you can kind of translate it over into other copies of Pilgrim's Progress, but um, tonight we're actually going to have to do four, uh, do two stages. So we got a lot to cover tonight. I don't, I'll just do the best I can. But, you know, there's no way to get behind because we, you know, we don't have many more weeks left. So we only have five more weeks after this. And so you got the schedule there next week, uh, Vanity Fair. Uh, hopeful. Um, we, we meet hopeful at the end of that and then some other aspects. So that's page 74 to 90 in the book. And then the week after, July 24th, we'll go to Doubting Castle, Giant Despair and Doubting Castle, probably one of the worst times that Christian had on his entire pilgrimage. We'll do that, pages 90 to 98. And then after that, July 31st, the pages are there, uh, the Shepherds, Delectable Mountains, etc., and then August 7th, um, the, the topics are listed there, page 112, 128, and then the final week, the Celestial City. So that's what, where we're going. You know, people have asked, so what do we read for next time? Now you know. All right, so I've done the best I can. I don't know that I divided it well, um, but you, know, you might be right in the middle of a discourse or something like that. I'm sorry, I'll just do the best I can. Secondly, I'm going to, I'm going to forego the review of the first three stages. All right, we just don't have time because we have four and five stages four and five tonight. But I'm going to keep giving you a progressive review of what we've already covered. Uh, there, it's there at the first part of your outline and bulleted list, and that'll just get you up to speed. But I'll tell you where we're at. We, they were at Christian was at the house called Beautiful, and he's having a, uh, an incredible time of fellowship with these. Uh, uh, these young women, um, piety, uh, discretion, charity, and prudence, and they have all kinds of good Christian fellowship, and he's very refreshed there at that place, and then the next day, they equip him for battle, basically. They give him weaponry so that he can fight, and he's going to need it as we can come into our session today. So it begins with the descent into the Valley of Humiliation and the battle with Apollyon. All right, so the hill, as he goes down from the house beautiful into the valley of humiliation, is slippery. Now, we don't know that from part one, but you do actually find that out in part two, the Christiana part, uh, that the hill is slippery as they go down. And Christian, as he descends, it says, caught a slip or two. And uh, it's interesting, in part two, they talk about that. His wife, who then with the children is on pilgrimage, uh, notes that uh, with her guide uh, that the guide said this is where your husband fought the battle with Apollyon and they actually say it's because he slipped as he went down into the valley that Apollyon was able to come with such vigor and attack him and so that's just uh, the uh, aspect there also in part two they describe the valley of humiliation this is what it says this is not from part one you didn't read it but it's in part two but we will come again to this valley of humiliation. It is the best and most fruitful piece of ground in all those parts. It is fat ground. And as you see, consisteth much in meadows. And if a man was to come here in the summertime, as we do now, if he knew not anything before thereof, and if he also delighted himself in the sight of his eyes, he might see that would be delightful to him. Behold how green this valley is. Also, how beautified with lilies. I have also known many laboring men that have got good estates in this valley of humiliation. For God resisteth the proud, but gives more grace to the humble. For indeed it is very fruitful soil, and doth bring forth by handfuls. Some also have wished that the next way to their father's house were here, that they might be troubled no more with either hills or mountains to go over. But the way is the way, and there's the end. 
So in other words, there's nothing we can do about it. This is how it is. But that's part two, and it talks about the Valley of Humiliation as a very fruitful place to travel through. Now, why do you think he says that? I know there's no discussion question here, but I'm going to assert one. Why is the Valley of Humiliation a very fruitful place in which to travel? Because God gives grace to the humble. Okay, I love it. Not only that, but God resists the proud or opposes the proud. Can you imagine having God opposing you? Anyone else? On the Valley of Humiliation be a very fruitful place. It is the attribute that the Apostle Paul wants the Philippians to embrace with each other. Be humble toward each other and consider other people's needs ahead of, of your own. So a humble person is ready, as, uh, as Jonathan was saying, a humble person is ready to receive grace upon grace from the Lord. But if you are proud, he has to humble you, he has to break you. All right, so that's all in the Valley of Humiliation. Now let's talk about this battle with Apollyon. This individual, this, this demon, Apollyon, comes to fight him. Now the word Apollyon is found in Revelation 9.11. Um, uh, also the same name as Abaddon in Hebrew or Apollyon in Greek. He's the commander of a demonic army there in the uh, sounding of the seven uh, trumpets. All right, uh, the word means destroyer. Bunyan would not have us believe that Apollyon is Satan. Uh, for in his victory poem at the end of this battle, Christian says that Beelzebub is the captain of this fiend and sent him to attack Christian. So Apollyon, however powerful he is and however terrifying an enemy, is not Satan. Uh, so actually more of perhaps a demon. Parenthetically, I actually don't think that any of us ever directly interacts with Satan. I think we're too small fish, all right? Satan is not God. He's not omnipresent. He doesn't interact equally with all beings at all times. He's at the top of a vast, dark, evil kingdom, but he has lots of servants. He has demons, and so I think it's actually beneficial to consider that you are battling demons, uh, but they're there in Satan's name, so it's nothing wrong with saying that you're resisting Satan or resisting the devil, etc. Now let's read. But now in this valley of humiliation, poor Christian was hard put to it, for he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. His name is Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought not thought that to turn the back to him might give him the greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore he resolved to venture and stand his ground, for, thought he, had I no more in mine eyes than the saving of my life, it would be the best way to stand. So let's stop and ask a question. What is the significance of Bunyan's observation that Christian had no armor for his back? How is this a shrewd observation based on Ephesians 6, the full armor of God? And what does it show of the basic approach Christian should uh, take when beset by the devil's attacks? So Christian has no armor for his back. You guys know the uh, armor of God in Ephesians 6? Apparently there's no provision for our back. I bet you never noticed that before. All right. So what does, uh, what does that teach you? Okay, so moving, moving ahead. Would you be willing to read Ephesians 6, 13, 14 right there from the handout? So is, is there a kind of a dominant command here in those verses that you notice? Stand, all right? So don't turn and run. You've got to stand your ground. You've got to stand firm. And so that's what he wants him to do. He wants him to stand and not turn the back to the, uh, to the monster. So let's uh, see how Apollyon is described. Now, the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. So then Apollyon and Christian debate. Now much of Satan's terrible power lies in his mouth, his ability to speak and ask questions and cause doubts and to intimidate. So Apollyon begins, Whence come you and whither are you bound? Christian, I am come from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil, and I am going to the city of Zion. Polyon, by this I perceive thou art one of my subjects, for all that country is mine, and I am the prince and God of it. How is it then that thou hast run away from thy king? Were it not that I hope thou mayest do me more service, I would strike thee now at one blow to the ground. 
Christian, I was born indeed in your dominions, but your service was hard and your wages such as a man could not live on, for the wages of sin is death. Therefore, when I was come to years, I did, as other considerate persons do, look out if perhaps I might mend myself. Paulion, there is no prince that will thus lightly lose his subjects, neither will I as yet lose thee. But since thou complainest of thy service and wages, be content to go back. What our country will afford, I do here promise to give thee. Christian, but I have let myself to another, even to the king of princes. How can I with fairness go back with thee? Apollyon, thou hast done in this according to the proverb, changed a bad for a worse. But it is ordinary for those that have professed themselves his servants, after a while to give him the slip and return again to me. Do thou so too, and all shall be well. Christian, I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. How then can I go back from this and not be hanged as a traitor? Apollyon, thou didst the same to me, and yet I am willing to pass by all, if now thou wilt yet turn again and go back. Christian, what I promised thee was in my nonage. There's a new word for everyone. I had to look it up. When was the last time you used that word in a sentence? It's your, in your youth. All right, so I looked it up. Anyway, say Pilgrim's Progress, a continual education in English. Anyway, what I promised thee was in my youth, and besides, I count the prince under whose banner now I stand as able to absolve me, yea, and to pardon also what I did as to my compliance with thee. And besides, O thou destroying Apollyon, to speak the truth, I like his service, his wages, his servants, his government, his company, and his country better than thine. And therefore, leave off to persuade me further. I am his servant, and I will follow him. Apollyon, consider again, when thou art in cool blood, what thou art like to meet with in the way that thou goest. Thou knowest that for the most part his servants come to an ill end, because they are transgressors against me in my ways. How many of them have been put to shameful deaths? And besides, thou countest his service better than mine, whereas he never came yet from the place where he is to deliver any that served him out of their hands. But as for me, how many times, as all the world very well knows, have I delivered either by power or fraud those that have faithfully served me from him and his? though taken by them, and so I will deliver thee. Putting it in simple terms, in other words, he says, I'm very good at persuading people who start out to be Christians to stop following Christ. I'm very good at that. I've been doing it again and again, and I'm going to do it with you. That's what he's saying. Christian, his forbearing at present is to deliver them, uh, to deliver them is on purpose to try their love, whether they will cleave to him to the end. And as for the ill end thou sayest they come to, that is most glorious in their account. For, for present deliverance, they do not much expect it, for they stay for their glory, and then they shall have it when their prince comes in his and the glory of the angels. Apollyon, thou hast already been unfaithful in thy service to him, and how dost thou think to receive wages of him? Christian, wherein, O Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him? Apollyon, thou didst faint at first setting out, when thou wast almost choked in the gulf of despond. Thou didst attempt wrong to be wrong ways to be rid of thy burden, whereas thou should have stayed till thy prince had taken it off. Thou didst sinfully sleep and lose thy choice thing. Thou wast also almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when thou talkest of thy journey, and of what thou hast seen and heard, thou art inwardly desirous of vainglory in all that thou sayest or doest. Christian, all this is true and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possessed me in thy country, for there I sucked them in, and I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon of my prince.
All right, so in this section here, what are some of the weapons of words that Apollyon uses to attack Christian here? What are the phrases of approach that he uses? Do you see flattery? Do you see false promises? Do you see hopelessness? Do you see threats? And do you see accusation of Christian sins? So what can we learn about how Satan tempts us from this exchange with Apollyon? This is a long stretch that I read here, but he goes through certain phases of Apollyon. So what do you learn about the way Satan tempts? I own you. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Go ahead. Okay, his identity. All right. He makes promises of what? What does he promise him? I'll, yeah, like he did with Jesus. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He didn't offer that to anybody but Jesus. But I'll give you some good things, you know. So he'll try to buy, buy the individual off. Okay, what else do you see? I'm good at this. I'm going to get you too. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm good at getting people to apostatize. Anyone else? I mean, it's really plain here at the end. What does he do almost at the end here? He reminds him of all of his sins. I mean, this is the, you know, the flaming arrows of the evil one are of two main categories, temptations and accusations. These are the two kind of general approaches that Satan takes toward us. He tries to entice us towards sin, and then when we've fallen in some way because of his very temptations, then he turns around and gets all righteous and starts accusing us of violating God's laws. How does, uh, how does Christian answer him? his accusations of sin. I mean, whenever you're being accused by the devil, you should quote Romans 8 where it says, um, you know, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who is he that condemns? Uh, almost like it is God who justifies, who dares to condemn? If God has said that a person's righteous, then who cares what anyone else says? So that's Romans chapter 8. All right, next question. Apollyon claims ownership over Christians, saying he is one of his subjects. How does this shed light on the freedom that Christ gives us, ironically, this is interesting, from Satan's authority, his right to command taught in Romans. Listen to this. Romans 5.21 uses this type of authority language. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin is personified, and then the verb reign is given. So sin acts like a king. It has kind of authority. It reigns over people. And then Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And then later in Romans 6, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. So you could think of law and sin and death all describing Satan's realm. And then grace and righteousness and God and all that, it's God's realm. You have been rescued from a dominion, a kingdom of darkness, and brought into a new kingdom with a new king. And so the old king no longer has any authority over you. He has no right to command you. What that means is whenever he commands you to sin, it would be not much different than somebody who sought political asylum during the Cold War and received it from the United States, then receiving a summons from the Soviet Union to appear at Red Square for military duty as he's living in his new apartment in Brooklyn. All right, what should you do with that summons now that you're an American citizen? <laughs> Laugh at it, burn it, you know? Should you obey it? Well, do you realize that when we sin, it's not much different than obeying that summons? Or like you used to be beaten in a gulag and you escaped and you were repatriated. Now you're the citizen of a new country and you, and you decide to take a vacation trip back to the gulag, you know, to just get beaten again a little and eat the food you used to eat in the gulag. And you see what I'm saying? And you're like, is sin really like that? No, it's worse than that. So then you may ask, then why do I ever yield 
to any temptation at all. If I can say no to every temptation, which you can, then why do you ever yield? What's the answer? Well, you know there is no answer. Friends, those of you that are parents, whenever you ask your child, why did you do it? What answer, Mason, what answer is there that can be given? Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Sin is essentially rational. It isn't much different than going back to the old gulag for a vacation. Um, And so here's the thing. In this battle with Apollyon, Apollyon acts as though you still belong to me. I still own you. I have the right to command you. And he's like, no, you don't. I have a new king. It's pretty cool. Any other comments about that, about this aspect of temptation? All right, let's keep going. Apollyon at this point becomes enraged and the battle is on. Then Apollyon broke out into a grievous rage saying, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws and people. I am come out on purpose to withstand thee. Christian, Apollyon, beware what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. So that's like, you know, David and Goliath right before they began their battle. You know, I'm going to give your flesh to the birds. It's like, well, I'm going to cut off your head, you know, all this kind of thing. So they're going back and forth. So they're, they're ready to fight. Then Apollyon straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way and said, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare thyself to die. For I swear by my infernal den that thou shalt go no further. Here I will spill thy soul. And with that, he threw a flaming flaming dart at his breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it and so prevented the danger of that. Then did Christian draw, for he saw that it was time to bestir him. And Apollyon is fast made at him, throwing darts as thick as hail. Uh, By the which, notwithstanding all that Christian could do to avoid it, Apollyon wounded him in his head, his hand, and foot. This made Christian give a little back. Apollyon therefore followed his work amain, and Christian again took courage and resisted as manfully as he could. This sore combat lasted for above half a day, even till Christian was almost quite spent, for you must know that Christian, by reason of his wounds, must needs grow weaker and weaker." Then Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian, and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly stretched out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I shall fall, I shall arise. Micah 7, 8. Parenthetically, when was the last time you used Micah 7, 8 in the battle against sin? But that's uh, that's Bunyan. You've got to have the full armor of God. You're ready for all, all that could come. And with that gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans 8, 37. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon's wings and sped him away. And that Christian, for a season, saw him no more. Now, in this combat, no man can imagine, unless he had seen and heard as I did, what yelling and hideous roaring Apollyon made, all the time of the fight. He spake like a dragon, and on the other side what sighs and groans burst from Christian's heart. I never saw him all the while give so much as one pleasant look till he perceived he had wounded Apollyon with his two-edged sword. And then indeed he did smile and look upward, but it was the dreadfulest sight that I ever saw. And then this poem, A more unequal match can hardly be. Christian must fight an angel. But you see, the valiant man by handling sword and shield doth make him, though a dragon, quit the field. Or as the scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now what in the world would cause the devil to flee from you? Why would the devil flee from you? Is it because you're such a mighty warrior? 
You know, it's funny how Apollyon says, I, have, I am void of fear in this matter. I am not afraid of you at all. But let me ask you a question. Do you think Legion was afraid of Jesus? Is there any indication that that demon-possessed man that identified himself as Legion, what, 6,000, 7,000 demons inside him, is there any indication he was afraid of Jesus? What do you think? Exactly. And he begged him, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he says, have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? Suppose he said, yes. <laughs> he throws them into the pit of demonic torment. What could they do? Nothing. It's pretty remarkable. I'll give you guys a little hint at the second sermon I'll preach when I get back from my preaching sabbatical, which is in a couple of weeks. Um, but I'm doing that in, encounter with the, uh, the Canaanite woman, remember, in Syrophoenicia, the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, do you remember how that encounter goes? Her, her daughter is demon-possessed. And uh, Jesus doesn't deal with her at all and then just keeps on walking. But I think she just threw herself right in front of him in his path. She, she was making him deal with her. And then he said, it's not right to take the children's bread, throw it to their dogs. He's, and she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, here's the really interesting thing. I had not noticed this before. Jesus said, woman, you have great faith. Because of this statement, your daughter is healed. You may go. The demon has gone. Now, think of the time frame. Because of the statement she just made, Jesus said the demon is planning on leaving, is about to leave. I've asked the demon to leave. The demon's out. So how long it's uh, uh, span from the end of her statement to Jesus' statement, the demon has gone? How long a time do you think that is? Two seconds? Woman, you have great faith. The demon's gone. So do you think the demon wanted to go? Clearly not. What made the demon leave so quickly without even packing his things? <laughs> power, sheer power from Jesus. He doesn't even have to be there. He just has to think the thought and the demon's gone out. That's the power of Jesus. So I think it's kind of humorous how Apollyon says here, I'm void of fear in this matter. And yet, who ends up running away at the end of the battle? It's not because Christian's so mighty, I can tell you, because of the power of Christ. All right, so let's look at that verse. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Based on what we learned here, does he flee right away as soon as you resist? Do you have a sense that he fled, that Apollyon fled from Christian right away? Well, how long did they fight for? Above half a day. So he doesn't run away right away. So there's some fighting that has to be done. So what do you learn about spiritual warfare from this account? Okay? Keep at it. Be determined. It's not, it's not easy. You know, you have to fight for a long time. What else? You think about somebody that's uh, trapped in a pattern of sin and they make determinations and resolutions to put that sin to death. Do you think they'd have to fight a battle like this maybe for half a day or three quarters of a day against some temptation? Getting out of a certain setting, physical setting that's tempting for them. Uh, maybe they have chemical dependences and they have to fight those things, etc. somebody that's trying to defeat alcohol or drugs or somebody who's trying to defeat internet sin or other things like that, there is a resistance that would have to take a long time. Battling sin is like this. And it's not just like one second and then it's gone, but there's a standing firm. Mason, go ahead. All right, so what finally gave the victory to Christian and how what would this tell you that might be helpful for you to do? How did he, in the end, win? What do you think, Wes? wielded the sword, so are there any beneficial habits or patterns that would be helpful in this matter, Wes? Any thoughts that might pop in your mind? Maybe memorization of Scripture might be helpful. Clearly, Jesus did. He wielded the book of Deuteronomy, for goodness sake, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8 in the desert, and it was effective. Man does not live on bread alone. You know, you shall not put the Lord to the test. And worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Those are just quotes from Scripture. So he teaches us how to do it. All right. Christian gives thanks for his victory. So when the battle was over, Christian said, I will here give thanks to him that delivered me out of the mouth of the lion, to him that did help me against Apollyon. And so he did, saying, Great Beelzebub, the captain of this fiend, designed my ruin, therefore to this end. He sent him harnessed out, and he with rage 
that hellish was, did fiercely me engage, but blessed Michael helped me, and I, by dint of sword, did quickly make him fly. Therefore to him let me give lasting praise, and thank and bless his holy name always. So, if Apollyon is merely a demon in Satan's service, what does this tell you about Satan himself? Yeah, keep in mind what it says in Jude and also in 2 Peter that the servants of the Lord, even the angels, don't bring reviling accusations against Satan, but just, you know, said the Lord rebuke you and did as little interacting with Satan as possible. He's far more powerful than we are, far more intelligent, far more clever. The less interaction that you can do with him, the better. Now, in 2 Peter, he's talking about um, teachers who are arrogant toward demonic forces and think they can control them and are powerful against them. Go ahead, Stephanie. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because let's say you made a simple, simple pledge to the Lord that you're going to obey for one full week as perfectly as you can the command, do everything without complaining or arguing. Just that. You're going to get through one week of your married life, your parenting, your family life, interactions with other Christians, co-workers, other drivers, other shoppers, everyone, without complaining or arguing once for seven, seven days. I mean, it's right in the Bible, right? Philippians 2.14. It's not hard to understand. It's not like I don't know what that means. You know what it means. You're going to draw a line in the sand right here, right now, for the next week, I'm not going to complain about anything, and I'm not going to argue. So, what do you think, Stephanie? What do you think that week would be like? What do you, what do you, do, you, do you think Apollyon? Oh, it'd be a terrible week. Do you think Apollyon might kind of come after that? With it, he's going to come hard at it, and the the more you resist, the harder it's going to get. And so, just to say, I just don't want to complain anymore about anything. I only want to speak words of praise and thankfulness to God. It's going to be hard to do. But is it worthwhile? Clearly it's worthwhile. We'd like to get to that point. All right, so Christian healed after his battle. <clears throat> By the way, uh, more about Apollyon being just a demon. You remember what um, it says in A Mighty Fortress concerning Satan, right? Did we in our own strength confide, that it means put our trust, our striving would be losing. So... You just have to understand how much power Satan has. All right, then uh, there came to him a hand with some of the leaves of the tree of life, the which Christian took and applied to the wounds that he had received in the battle and was healed immediately. He also sat down in that place to eat bread and to drink of the bottle that was given him a little before. So being refreshed, he addressed himself to his journey with his sword drawn in his hand, for he said, I know not, but some other enemy may be at hand. But he met with no other affront from Apollyon quite through this valley. Now we come to the next trial. The valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So the valley described... Now at the end of this valley was another, called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And Christian must needs go through it, because the way to the celestial city lay through the midst of it. Now this valley is a very solitary place. The prophet Jeremiah thus describes it, a wilderness, a land of deserts and of pits, a land of drought, and of the shadow of death, a land that no man but a Christian passed through, and where no man dwelt. Now here, Christian was worse put, put to it than in his fight with Apollyon, as by the sequel, you shall see. In other words, he's about to have a much harder time than he had battling Apollyon. So, two men terrorized by fear. I then saw in my dream that when Christian was got to the borders of the shadow of death, there met him two men, children of them that brought up an evil report of the good land, Numbers 13, making haste to go back to whom Christian spake as follows, Whither are you going? They said, Back, back, and we would have you to do so too, if either life or peace is prized by you. Why, what is the matter, said Christian. Matter, said they. We were going that way as you are going, and went as far as we durst, 
And indeed, we were almost past coming back. For had we gone a little further, we had not been here to bring this news to thee. But what have you met with, said Christian? Why, we were almost in the valley of the shadow of death. But that by good hap we looked before us and saw the danger before we came to it. But what have you seen, said Christian? Seen by the valley itself, said the men, which is as dark as pitch. <coughs> we also saw there hobgoblins, satyrs, and dragons of the pit. And we heard also in that valley a continual howling and yelling as of a people under unutterable misery who there sat bound in affliction and irons. And over that valley hangs the discouraging clouds of confusion. Death also doth always spread his wings over it. In a word, it is every whit dreadful, being utterly without order. Then said Christian, I perceive not yet by what you have said, but that this is the way to the desired, my way to the desired haven. <coughs> Be it thy way, said the men, we will not choose it for ours. So they parted, and Christian went on his way, but still with his sword drawn in his hand for fear, lest he should be assaulted. I saw then in my dream, so far as this valley reached, there was on the right hand a very deep ditch. That ditch is it, it is into which the blind have led the blind into all ages, and have both there miserably perished. Again, behold, on the left hand, there was a very dangerous quag into which if even a good man falls, he can find no bottom for his foot to stand on. Into that quag King David once did fall and had no doubt therein been smothered had not he that is able plucked him out. The pathway was here also exceeding narrow and therefore good Christian was the more put to it for when he saw it in the dark, to shun the ditch on the one hand, he was ready to tip over into the mire on the other. And also when he sought to escape the mire without great carefulness, he would be ready to fall into the ditch. Thus he went on. And I heard him here sigh bitterly, for besides the dangers mentioned above, the pathway was here so dark, and oft times when he lift up his foot to set forward, he knew not, where or upon what he should set it next. Poor man, where art thou now? Thy day is night. Good man, be not cast down. Thou yet art right. Thy way to heaven lies by the gates of hell. Cheer up, hold out, with thee it shall go well. All right, so here's a question that I don't necessarily have an answer to. What is the valley of the shadow of death in real life? Okay, depression. Spiritual depression, okay. Mental and psychological depression, despair, which we're going to bump into again in Doubting Castle, but maybe that's the same, you know, it's just different ways of ministering despair to us. Anyone else? The valley of the shadow of death, all right? Dark thoughts of suicide? Maybe so. I don't, like I said, I don't have an answer. I know it's so familiar, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Bunyan just pictures it here with a narrow path going with dangers on either side. He likens it to David sinking down into a bog and he can't get out. So that sounds like a spiritual depression. But, you know, as Amanda said, it might re relate to somebody very close to you facing death or having a uh, you know, fatal illness or actually dying and going to a funeral. And it's very sad and depressing, Mason. Yeah, I think so. I, I think uh, in terms of like my favorite missionary biography is Adoniram Judson. And he reached the lowest part of his life after his wife, Nancy, died. And then shortly thereafter, their child died too. And uh, so he's buried two children, a wife, and there's been no converts. And so he got, goes out and digs effectively his own grave, though he doesn't commit suicide and just sits by it out in the jungle for a long time, like days. So I would imagine that for him, that was his walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Because what's he feeling? He's feeling like I've brought nothing but death to my family. Nothing good has come. I don't think anybody's ever going to get converted. All these doubts and fears and guilt and all of this stuff. And he's tempted, like you said, towards suicide probably, but he's not going to do that. He says these words, God is the great unknown to me. You know, I don't know who he is. 
And so you're going through all of this darkness, you know, and depression. And he just sits there, and then he's got people that come and are talking to him, but he's not listening to them, and it just takes days before he can get up off the ground and go back and resume his life. So that might be an example of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. All right. Close by hell. About the midst of this valley, I forgot to ask, how does the Lord help us through? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for thou art with me. So what does that mean? I mean, was, how was God with Adoniram Judson as he's sitting there and he's saying, I don't know who you are. I don't understand you at all. How was God with him? Sustained him so he didn't kill himself. Start there. Enabled him a few days later to get up off the ground and start doing mission things again. Healed him. Days become weeks, become months, become years, and then he gets to the point where he sees the fruit of his life and he doesn't regret anything. And I like the image of a very narrow path, but you have to go through it. You have to just keep going. You know, you have to keep putting one foot in front of another, even though there's danger on both sides. You have to keep going. So that seems like what she's doing, the promises of God. All right, close by hell. About the midst of, the, of this valley, I perceive the mouth of hell to be, and it stood also hard by the wayside. Now thought, Christian, what shall I do? And ever and anon the flame and smoke would come out in such abundance with sparks and hideous noises, things that cared not for Christian sword, as did Apollyon before that he was forced to put up his sword and betake himself to another weapon called all prayer. Ephesians 6.18 So he cried in my hearing, O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Thus he went on a great while, yet still the flames would be reaching towards him. Also he heard doleful voices and rushings to and fro, so that sometimes he thought he should be torn in pieces or trodden down like mire in the streets. This frightful sight was seen, and these dreadful noises were heard by him for several miles together. And coming to a place where he thought he heard a company of fiends coming forward to meet him, he stopped and began to muse what he had best to do. Sometimes he had half a thought to go back, and then again, he thought he might be halfway through the valley. He remembered also how he had already vanquished many a danger and that the danger of going back might be much more than for to go forward. So he resolved to go on. Yet the fiends seemed to come nearer and nearer. But when they were come even almost at him, he cried out with a most vehement voice, I walk in the strength of the Lord God. So they gave back and came no further. So let me ask this question, second half of this next question. How are, in the Bible, and just in the experience, but think scripturally, faith and fear frequently set as opposites? Probably the clearest example of this, um, you know, the, the juxtaposition or the opposition of faith and fear is uh, when Jairus' little daughter dies and Jesus turns, and what does he say to him? Fear not, only believe. So there it is. It's just head to head. Don't be afraid, just believe, even though your daughter is dead. So that's pretty powerful. So it's good to know that faith and fear are opposites. Definitely faith and anxiety are opposites. Anxiety is a certain kind of fear. It's a bad use of imagination all right, <laughs> of what might happen to you. Yes, go ahead. Well, when the statement perfect love casts out fear has to do with a different kind of fear. There is a, a, a appropriate healthy fear uh, that is the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. But the, the fear in 1 John seems to me to be fear of, of condemnation uh, that God would do contrary to his covenant, contrary to his promises, that he's made a pledge to us that if we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And so perfect love dries out that kind of fear. There's a sense of, of a sense of the love of God perfected in our hearts, and then we don't fear the condemnation anymore based on our sin. I think that's what perfect love casts out fear means. So, all right, let's keep going. Unable to hear his own voice. One thing I could not, I would not let slip. I took notice that now poor Christian was so confounded that he did not know his own voice. 
And thus I perceived it. Just when he was coming over against the mouth of the burning pit, one of the wicked ones got behind him and stepped up softly to him and whisperingly suggested many grievous blasphemies to him, which he verily thought had proceeded from his own mind. This put Christian more to it than anything that he had met with before, even to think that he should now blaspheme him that he, he loved so much before. Yet if he could have helped it, he would not have done it. But he had not the discretion either to stop his ears or to know from whence these blasphemies came. Now here's a very important insight. Satan has the power, demons have the power to insinuate ideas into our minds in the form of temptations that we mistake for our own. And I believe, and this is something I want to urge all, all married couples to consider, if you're ever having conflicts, that sometimes in the midst of a conflict, something may pop in your head that you don't believe. And that if you say it, it will do kind of irreparable damage in your relationship, or it will take a long time to heal. And that you, if you say it, have been temporarily taken captive to do the devil's work. So I would just urge you to be very, very careful at times like that and not do the devil's work and say things that you don't believe, but that will be very hard to unsay and say, I didn't really mean it. Well, you said it, but it wasn't me that said it. The devil said it, that kind of thing. Just be aware that the devil has this kind of power to whisper things into your mind that you have to say, wait, 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 uh, -uh I don't believe that. And you have to fight in your mind against bad thoughts. Keep in mind, the angels the angel spoke to Joseph in a dream and told him to take Mary and the baby Jesus and go to uh, Egypt and then spoke to him in a dream again and told him that those who are trying to take the child's life are dead go back now to Israel. What does that tell you about angelic capabilities? They are able to speak into the minds of human beings. So that's just good to know. All right. Another traveler... When Christian had traveled in this disconsolate condition some considerable time, he thought he heard the voice of a man as going before him saying, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Then he was glad, and that for three reasons. If I can just stop and say the Puritans are the greatest list makers in church history. All right, And that for three reasons. Reason number one. <laughs> this is what they do. Because he gathered from thence that some who feared God were in this valley as well as himself. Secondly, for that he perceived God was with them, though in that dark and dismal state. And why not, thought he, with me? Though by reason of the impediment that attends this place, I cannot perceive it. And thirdly, for that he hoped that he could overtake them to have company by and by. So he went on and called to him that was before. But he knew not what to answer, for that he also thought to be alone. And by and by the day broke, and then said Christian, He hath turned the shadow of death into the morning. Amos 5.8 So then the morning light drives the shadow, uh, the fears away. New, now morning being come. And he looked back, not out of desire to return, but to see by light of the day what hazards he had gone through in the dark. So he saw more perfectly the ditch that was on the one hand and the mire that was on the other and how narrow was the way which led betwixt them both. And now also he saw the hobgoblins and satyrs and dragons of the pit, but all afar off for after break of day they came not nigh. Yet they were discovered to him according to that which is written. He discovereth deep things out of darkness and bringeth out, of, out to light the shadow of death. Now was Christian much affected with his deliverance from all the dangers of his solitary way, which dangers, though he feared them more before, yet he saw them more clearly now, because the light of the day made them conspicuous to him. And about this time the sun was rising, and this was another mercy to Christian. For you must note that though the first part of the valley of the shadow of death was dangerous, yet the second part which he was yet to go through was, if possible, far more dangerous. For from this place where he now stood, even to the end of the valley, 
The way was all along set so full of snares, traps, gins, and nets here, and so full of pits, pitfalls, deep holes, and shelvings down there, that had it now been dark as it was uh, when he came through the first part of the way, had he a thousand souls, they had in reason been cast away. But, as I just said now, the sun was rising, then said, He, his candle shineth upon my head, and by his light I walk through darkness. So it's just much better during the, during the daylight. It could also speak practically a lots of these kinds of nights of depression, all that come at night, when you're alone and there's darkness all around and there's lots of fears. And so the sunlight brings a lot of joy. All right, we're going to finish with Pope and Pagan. I have to slip this one in here. <clears throat> it's funny how some of the modern editions in England, which is much more pluralistic now on that, leave this section out but they ought not to. Um, we'll go ahead and read it. In this light, therefore, he came to the end of the valley. Now I saw in my dream that at the end of this valley lay blood, bones, ashes, and mangled bodies of men, even of pilgrims that had gone this way formerly. And while I was musing what should be the re reason, I espied a little before me a cave where two giants, Pope and Pagan, dwelt in old time by whose power and tyranny the men whose bones, blood and ashes, etc., lay there, were cruelly put to death. But by this place Christian went without much danger, whereat I somewhat wondered. But I've since uh, learned since that Pagan has been dead many a day, and as for the other, though he be yet alive, he is by reason of age and also of the many shrewd brushes that he met with in his younger days, grown so crazy and stiff in his joints that he can now do little more than sit in his cave's mouth grinning at pilgrims as they go by and biting his nails because he cannot come at them. <laughs> that was in 1680, 1674. That's speaking of Pope. All right. So I saw that Christian went on his way, yet at the sight of the old man that sat in the mouth of the cave, he could not tell what to think, especially because he spake to him, though he could not go after him, saying, You will never mend till more of you be burned. But he held his peace and set a good face on it, and so went by and catch no hurt. Now keep in mind, after Bunyan died in 1688, I think he died in 1688, shortly, right around that time, uh, there was uh, complete religious uh, toleration, we would say toleration. Not freedom like we have in our country, there's still a state religion. But the, there's toleration of all religions. And so the time of persecution was just about ended. But a hundred years before that, Pope was uh, pretty powerful. And there were bloody, you know, a trail of blood, in, in certainly in the Inquisition in Spain, in France, where Huguenots were slaughtered. Uh, in many other places where the price of being a Protestant was your own blood, and certainly in England during the reign of Bloody Mary. So that's what he's referring to here. All right, so we're done. We'll meet faithful, God willing, next time, or you can read about it in the handout or in the booklet uh, yourself. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.